Section 27 of The Wounded Name by D.K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 9, Part 2. 3. It was quite dusk when Laurent rode into Oran, but the little Breton town was stirred by the presence of troops into an animation which it could never have known in ordinary times at that hour. He put up his hired horse at the Hôtel de Cusson, was told there where to find the little house where Monsieur de la Rochetterie was believed to be lodging, inquired of the old woman who owned it, in what room he should find her guest, and went up unannounced. Only outside the door he paused a moment, as once at La Boussaine. Then he opened it and went in. Aymar was sitting at the table, facing him, under the lamp, the dear and well-known head bent over some papers. He did not instantly look up, and Laurent had time to take in the rather comfortless little room, the remains of a meal of cheerless aspect, at one end of the table, and the fact that there were at least three grey hairs in the bright, lamp-lit bronze. And then Loiselog abstractedly raised his head. And all that Laurent had ever done or suffered for him was trebly repaid in that one moment of time when he saw the sudden incredulous joy on his face. And the papers went to the floor. Oh, you, Laurent, you. <laughs> Who else? asked Laurent. How oh, didn't you mean me to see that postscript? <laughs> I was only half afraid that you wouldn't, said Aymar, half laughing, half choking as they embraced. Oh, have you really forgiven me, then, for leaving you in that abominable fashion at Cécigne? Oh, I forgive you nothing, responded Laurent ambiguously, and, holding him at arm's length, surveyed him with critical eyes. Aymar was very thin, but there was a trace of colour in his lips, if nowhere else. He was in uniform, the very uniform in which Laurent had so admired him in Paris, and once more he was wearing the cross of Saint-Louis, on his breast. But he had no sword. I do not think much of your choice of lodging, observed the newcomer, after a little, looking round the room. Or could you not have found something more comfortable? Very likely, responded Aymar, unperturbed. But the first consideration was to find someone who would take me in, without demur. And I knew that Madame Leblanc would do that. Laurent opened his lips to say something and thought better of it. But it seemed horrible that Loiselard should make this statement without a shadow of his old bitterness, as if it were the most natural thing in the world for his presence to be objected to. Oh, I did not, however, propose to condemn you to Madame Leblanc's cooking, if you did come, went on his friend. De Fresnet tells me that there is still a room or two at the Hôtel de l'Ecusson. Laurent shrugged his shoulders. Oh, I shall stay here, if there's a corner anywhere. And you won't say, if you do, I shall not sleep under this roof, will you? Aymar gave him a strange, sweet little smile and put his hand for a moment over his. I know better now than to argue with you, mon ami, but I would like to make one appeal to you on the score of your own reputation. It will not do you any good and it might do you untold harm to be seen with me, to lodge with me. You know. 
How is that why Monsieur de Fresne has so carefully installed himself at the Hôtel de Cusson? broke in Laurent hotly. And your friend Saint-Étienne, where is he? Has he been equally prudent? Aymar looked at him rather oddly. Oh, Saint-Étienne is much further away, he said, with what seemed an effort. And I implore you, Laurent, not to harbour a grudge against the excellent de Fresne. He does so hate this whole affair. It is against his better judgment. He puts himself in rather an unpleasant position. And yet he is giving evidence at my request. Oh, it is the least he can do, retorted the implacable Laurent. But what about Saint-Étienne, your most important witness, it seems to me? Unless you've secured that Monsieur du Parc. Why do you say he's far away? I hope you have both of them. Laurent looked down at the floor. <laughs> Laurent, I ought not to have allowed you to come here. Oh, I ought not, indeed. I did try, in my letter, not to let you see how much I wanted you, but it was too strong for me. Yet, at least, I did not know the worst when I wrote. I've neither of those two as witnesses. Saint-Étienne I can never have. Oh, good God, why not? Aymar, your whole case. Saint-Étienne is dead, answered Aymar gravely. And he told his stunned hearer how, when he had made up his mind to court inquiry, he had written to Saint-Étienne to ask him if he would give evidence on his behalf and where Monsieur Dupac could be found. No answer came. Meanwhile, Sol de Grisol made arrangements and fixed the date. Then came a letter from Saint-Étienne's relatives, telling Aymar of his death from wounds received in a skirmish in July. Of Monsieur Dupac they knew nothing whatever, and the name was so little uncommon that to trace him, Aymar had already tried, was hopeless. But, Laurent, he concluded, I could not draw back now. Think of inviting an inquiry, and then, on the eve, withdrawing from it. Sol de Grisol could not give me any longer, because he is disbanding. And, in any case, I think the result was doubtful. Only for the sake of the name I bear, I felt that I must face it. I came to that resolve at Evernose, but it was a struggle. It took three days to bring me to it. He smiled. And now it seems hopeless. But I shall make a fight for it, though as far as direct testimony goes, I'm now empty-handed. My only chance is that what testimony I can bring will produce a favorable general impression. Several people here have personally assured me that they would believe me on my bare word. And perhaps the court also may have an inclination to believe me because of my former reputation. I had one once. Again he spoke without bitterness, but Laurent shivered. The new Aymar discomposed, a little frightened him. He asked of whom the court consisted. Aymar told him. And when he came to one name, Laurent gave a joyful exclamation. How did Tremblay? Du Tremblay himself. Oh, luck at last. I overheard him speak so warmly of you in Paris. And when he learns what he owes you. Owes me? Oh, you mean that cipher business. But he will not hear anything about that, my dear Laurent. 
the only evidence which I might call on you to give would be why I was unable to court inquiry earlier, if the point were brought up against me. My story, as I shall give it, will end with the last bullet. I am afraid that they are sure to want to hear something about that affair, and I should prefer to tell them details rather than to have them dragged out. But you need not fear that I shall dilate upon it. How, feeling about it as he did, he could face the prospect of having that horrible business in the wood gone into at all, Logon could not conceive. If he were of less sensitive fibre, but then, perhaps, he would not also have the icebrook's temper. But he had already become aware of a singular and subtle change in Aimard, the advent of a strange kind of calm, as if a man should come out of very deep waters, with something of himself washed away, yet with something added. His composure seemed perfectly natural and effortless, but considering what he had to face tomorrow, and what hung on the results of that ordeal, Logon could not believe that it had been achieved, was being maintained now, without heavy cost. And had it to do with that last, and that cruelest hurt of all? He thought so. But perhaps the hand which gave the wound had already tried to heal it. Does Madame de, de la Gossetterie know of the inquiry? he asked suddenly. Yes, but she does not realize how serious it is for me, because when I wrote a few days ago, I merely told her that I had asked for an investigation into the rumors of treachery at pont au I have had a line in return, approving of my action. He smiled, a little ironically, and I hope that, whatever the verdict, she may never learn the details of the evidence. Logon knew what he meant by that phrase. After a moment, Aimag added, I wrote to my cousin, also, saying that I hoped at least to keep her name out. And that is my hope. But had he heard from her? Presumably not, since he immediately changed the conversation and began to talk about the way in which he was laying out the first installment of Logon's money on the disabled and widows after which he got up and took something off the mantelpiece. Such an extraordinary coincidence, Laurent. I threw this away, as you know. When I put on my uniform, for which I'd sent to Cécine, and there was the chartier in a pocket. Oh, well, don't throw it away again, said Laurent. It must mean that the luck has turned. Aimag, wear it tomorrow. Oh, to please me, let me see if I cannot somehow fasten it to your arm again. Oh, it's nonsense, I know, but just to please me. And to please him, his friend consented. Moreover, so thin was his arm now that, with the aid of needle and thread from Madame Leblanc, Laurent did succeed in fastening the rush bracelet in its place once more. I've only recently learnt from Evenot, said Aimag as Laurent put in the last stitch, of another legend which seems much truer than the story about running water. If you are fortunate in, if you have obtained, or are about to obtain, your heart's desire, the Chartier will leave you. He pulled down his sleeve. And apparently, he added, and trying to smile, when that is lost forever, the Chartier comes back. Oh, it has already found me. Remember when, 
an immense pity for him, invaded Laurent. He was rather staggered, too. Oh, but this return must mean that you have your luck again, that you're going to come through tomorrow. And perhaps. I admit that I need something to counteract. Now come in. Ah, de Fresne. Let me make known to you my friend Monsieur de Courtemar, of whom I've told you. The two men bowed a little stiffly. Well, Monsieur de Courtemar, said the newcomer starkly, if you have heard the last piece of news, I think you will admit that we are here on a fool's errand. Laurent fired up. As Monsieur de la Rochetterie is now irrevocably committed to this enterprise, Monsieur, he retorted, that is hardly an encouraging view of the situation to put before him. Monsieur de la Rochetterie does not need that view to be put before him, interposed Aymar. It is already his own. Sit down, de Fresne. Laurent moved away. That was the man who, with his own eyes, had seen the outrage wrought on Aymar, who, in addition to his own indirect share in bringing it about, had not even got himself scratched in trying to prevent it. And yet he surprised on this man's face, as he spoke in low tones with Loiselard, an anxiety much more selfless and acute than his rough and untactful words had suggested. It was late when de Fresne left. Laurent's sleep was heavy but broken, and he spent a large portion of it in giving evidence of the most ridiculous and disconnected order. He was glad, therefore, when morning came, for he had yet to realize how its hours were going to drag, since the inquiry did not begin till two o'clock in the afternoon. The only event of importance was the arrival of Colonel Richard for consultation with Aymar. His dismay when he heard of the disastrous gap in the evidence was obvious, though not so nakedly displayed as de Fresnes, but he dismissed the idea of turning back, which, indeed, Aymar had never seriously contemplated. When a man has courage of your type, were his parting words, circumstances themselves crumble before him. In any case, you've taken the right course. And without you I could not have taken it, responded Aymar warmly. I only hope that you will have no cause to regret your great generosity in coming here on my account. With a meal, at which Laurent ate even less than Aymar, the interminable morning did come at last to an end, but when half-past one sounded from a clock outside, and Aymar put his notes in his pocket and rose, Laurent heartily wished it were nine o'clock again. The inquiry was to be held in the Hôtel de Ville, and Aymar had refused to drive the short distance thither. Moreover, since he equally refused to have his actual witnesses go with him, if Laurent had not joined him, he would apparently have set forth entirely alone for the place of ordeal, and that through what might possibly be itself an ordeal. Neither of them knew how the feeling went in Oran. At the last moment Laurent, unobserved, divested himself of his recently assumed sword. Aymar de la Rochetterie should not be the only man to walk through the streets that afternoon in uniform, but disarmed. They set forth side by side. It was a hot day, and the streets in their afternoon shadelessness were not very full. For that reason, 
the figure of Loiselac was all the more conspicuous, and Logon felt it. Only a faint hope sustained him that a spectator might wonder which of the two swordless officers was he whose once brilliant name was so tarnished. But though everyone within sight stared or turned to look, there was no demonstration. A few passing officers even saluted him, and though a couple very obviously crossed the street to avoid him. Only in traversing the marketplace, they came full on a chouan of Gambag's legion, and he, as they passed, looked full on the two young men, and then deliberately spat on the ground at Emag's feet. Oh, don't, Laurent, said Emag in a low voice, clutching his arm and pulling him on, turning on him meanwhile, a face for the moment like a dead man's. Remember, for God's sake, that I have my own temper to keep. Only a few scarcely interested spectators lounged round the semicircular steps of the Hôtel de Ville. At the top, Aimac suddenly caught his friend's arm again. What have you done with your sword? Laurent, whose teeth were still clenched, glanced down at his side. Why was Aimac so observant? How ass that I am, I must have forgotten it. But it is of no consequence, I'm not here on duty. I've forgotten it, when you had it on five minutes before we started. The grasp tightened. Oh, Laurent, who but you would have thought of such a thing? He gave him a long look, removed his hand with a rather shaken little laugh, and they went in. 4. The hall of the Hôtel de Ville at Oran was a good deal too large for the purpose to which it was now being put, for the proceedings were not really public, only the military being admitted. Yet at first there seemed to Laurent to be a crowd of faces. Afterwards they resolved themselves into those of about thirty or forty officers, ranged fanwise on either side of the dais on which, at a long table, sat the court itself. But after the first slight shock of dismay, on finding that the audience was not directly behind Amag, but facing him, the young man had eyes for the court only. There were nine of them, all of superior rank. In the middle sat Sol de Grisol, the general-in-chief of Brittany, the man who had been Cadudal's lieutenant sixteen years before, and who, being implicated in his subsequent conspiracy, had suffered an imprisonment of ten years, in surroundings so horrible that his health and vigor were gone, his eyesight almost ruined, and that he was an old man at fifty-four. There was his major-general, the Marquis de Boissière, on whom the king had actually bestowed full powers of leadership for the province, but who, on finding Sol de Grisol already in command, had voluntarily subordinated himself to him, the abler to the less able. And there were the Chevalier de Séquillon and de Magadelle, and the others Laurent could not identify save one, indeed, the man who owed so much to his disgraced comrade, and who probably did not know it, Monsieur du Tremblay, seen previously in such different surroundings. An orderly showed them their places. In front of the dais, but at some distance from it, a table and a chair had been set for a math. Behind him, seats were to accommodate his witnesses, but they were apparently to give their evidence from another table placed in a line with his. 
Laurent wondered if he would ever succeed in standing at it. But no one challenged his right to sit with de Fresne and Colonel Richard and an unknown man whom he guessed to be the landlord of the Abbaye d'Or. And then, after a pause which seemed interminable, after some consultation among the nine officers enthroned there, whispered comments from the onlookers, and a steady fire of glances directed at the pale, uniformed, swordless young man, seated alone at the little table, the general rose in his place. "'I wish to remind you, gentlemen,' he said as emphatically as his broken voice would permit, that this is not a court-martial. Though the Vicomte de la Rochetterie's sword lies before us on the table, having originally been surrendered in circumstances about which we shall shortly hear, he is in no sense under arrest. He is here of his own free will, having asked for an investigation into his recent conduct, about which, as you are doubtless aware, very damaging rumours are in circulation, although no formal charge has been preferred against him. You, his fellow officers, are accordingly met here to give him an opportunity of clearing himself from the very grave imputation under which he rests of having betrayed his own men to the enemy on the night of the 27th of April last. He paused a moment and cleared his throat. And the procedure which we shall follow is that Monsieur de la Rochetterie will first give us an outline, his account of what occurred, and will then go over it in detail, producing his witnesses and answering any question which the court may put to him. And since there is no accuser, we are ready for him to begin at once. So the lists were fairly set, for what Aymar had said last night was a hopeless fight. He got to his feet, and after a few words of thanks to the general-in-chief and the court for consenting to hear him, electrified everybody, and Laurent not least, by saying firmly and quietly, I wish to begin by stating that I do not deny having sent certain information to the enemy on the night of 27th April, nor that my action was the cause of the disaster at pont au rocher nor that my men, believing me to have purposely betrayed them, shot me for it. So strong a sensation here went round court and audience alike, and that Aymar was obliged to pause. Good Lord, thought Laurent to himself, what a way to open, and how like him. But, went on Aymar, standing like a statue, I emphatically deny the motive assigned to my action. I shall hope to prove to the court that the disaster was the result, in reality, of a scheme which went wrong, that no treachery was intended for a moment, and that my men acted as they did under a misapprehension. He began without more ado to read a summary, a short, lucid statement, making no appeal for mercy, but laying a certain stress, as it proceeded, on the points which were undoubtedly in his favour. Such were the important conversation with Saint-Étienne and Monsieur du Pac at Caravaine, showing that the whole scheme had been worked out beforehand, and that he could reasonably rely on Saint-Étienne's collaboration. His immediate return to his own men, and the frantic haste he made to warn them, and his agreeing to give up his sword and court an inquiry, which, however, the precipitate action of his followers put for the time out of the question. 
he then started to take his points in more detail. With regard to the conversation at the Abbey d'Or, the general or the Marquis de Boissillac could bear out his statement that Colonel de Saint-Étienne and his regiment were at Caravaine on April 27th. Of what passed at his interview with him, however, he had to acknowledge that he could not produce evidence, since Monsieur de Saint-Étienne was dead and he had failed to trace Monsieur du Parc. He was perfectly aware of how unfortunate this was for his case. The court concurred and found voice in a member who remarked somewhat gratuitously that Monsieur de la Rochetterie had then nothing to prove that the story of his plan was not concocted afterwards. And that, responded Aymar a trifle dryly, is exactly the inference which may be drawn. But I can at least prove that I had an interview with those two gentlemen at the Abbey d'Or on that date. I will call the innkeeper himself for that purpose. The questioning of that worthy over, Aymar proceeded with his narrative, and soon came, with what inward shrinking Laurent guessed, and to the arrival at Cécigne of the Marquis, he did not name him, with news of grave peril to a lady who had rendered a service to the cause in 1813, and might therefore well stand in danger from the imperialists now, and how, rejecting his impulse to give himself up in her stead, he decided to offer the Bonapartists his lieutenant's letter in exchange for her, with a fixed intention, however, of carrying out the rest of the plan exactly as sketched. And then, as Laurent anticipated, the questions began. Now, who was the lady, monsieur? Was it not immaterial what her name was? asked Aymar. No, replied the officer who had put the question. Not if we are to believe that she was in danger because of past services. Oh, you cannot take my word for those services. They shook their heads. Then someone said, we quite appreciate that you want to keep her name out of this business, Monsieur de la Rochetterie, but we must know what those services were, and we must have some proof that the detained lady was really she who rendered them. Aymar thereupon detailed Madame de Villecresne's exploit at Chalet, the results of which were highly beneficial to a certain leader. And the Chevalier de Séquillon, suddenly declaring that he knew the story and the name of its heroine, it was finally agreed that if a responsible witness wrote down the name of the lady detained by the Bonapartists and sent it up to the court, and it proved to be the same, he would have established his point. But what witness could do this? Loiselard turned and exchanged a look with Colonel Richard, who nodded. So he announced that the witness whom he was about to call in any case would do this for him, since it was he who had had the lady in his hands. And not a little to the general surprise, Colonel Richard, lately in command of the imperialist troops at Saint-Quazec, was cited to give evidence for his defeated opponent. He got up very impassively, writing down the name as he did so. It was passed up and found satisfactory. I will now ask you, Colonel Richard, said Aymar, addressing him, to tell the story of your receipt of Monsieur de Fresne's letter in order to show that no more was asked of you than this lady's safety, and that in actual fact even that bargain could not be carried out, and because the lady was never really in danger. 
at which revelation even members of the court were observed to hold their heads. End of section 27